This is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 170, with our spoiler-filled discussion of Ant-Man and the Wasp. Welcome back, fellow Defenders, to the teeniest and tiniest of Marvel superhero movies with the Ant-Man and the Wasp spoiler-filled discussion by Defenders TV Podcast. We are on episode 170, and I am one of your hosts, John. I am also here, Chris Jones, fellow Defenders, and I am here to help review this somewhat quantum-level movie. And I'm your final host, Derek. I'm also here to discuss this. Yeah, a bit of a weird one, isn't it? After the summer that we've all had, being surrounded by wasps and bees and every type of insect, we go to a a cinema to see a movie about two insects. Well, that's it. (laughs) Given I have been um, eaten alive this summer, I went into this movie expecting to hate it uh, (laughs) because of all the biting uh, and stinging insects, but came out really enjoying it. Hmm. Yes. So let's uh, let's talk about the the elephant sized wasp in the room. Uh-huh. Um, obviously, this is quite a late MCU in review for us. Yes, in that like that typically we would re- kind of record in our first week of viewing it, um, and that is exactly what we are doing. We are recording within the first seven to eight days of us getting to see the film. That is because of good old jolly World Cup. <laughs> that has basically stopped most of Europe from uh, over a month and a half nearly in some countries, a yeah. month to a month and a half in most countries, not getting access to Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, until that time after uh, the US. Yes, uh, And yes. it was all because of good old soccer and the World Cup being in Russia and advertising and then not wanting to clash with people having to go. There's lots of choices or lots of reasons, but... Pretty much that was it. I think, yeah, I think they said that the budget for advertising during the World Cup throughout Europe is significantly higher. So they would have had to pay a huge amount to advertise a movie like Ant-Man and the Wasp, which would have completely pushed it over the level that they that they thought they'd be able to make the money back on. So they decided to push it out for over a month uh, for all of us over in Europe, unfortunately. But we still did get the chance to see it. And what's really interesting, a movie like Ant-Man and the Wasp, unlike something like Captain America or Avengers Infinity War, I don't think it really suffered that much. I don't think I was worried about being spoiled about the plot of Ant-Man and the Wasp for that extra month. It did suck that we didn't get to see it, but I didn't get spoiled on anything for that entire month. No, definitely. Um, like Part of me was wondering that that was a little bit of a a worrying sign, but I, I, I do think Ant-Man, in terms of the MCU, it's always followed a massive movie. Um, it's a little more... How should I say it? A bit niche I think, mm-hmm. um, maybe. So it kind of has an interesting slot, I think, within the, the MCU a bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I mean, it's something we can certainly get into, uh, when we discuss the movie. 
Absolutely. And fellow Defenders, if you are not subscribed to the podcast or if you're subscribed to Marvel Movies on Defenders TV Podcast, please come over and subscribe to the full podcast, Defenders TV Podcast, over at our website on DefendersTVPodcast.com. Uh, we're going to be covering quite a few things over the next uh, couple of weeks and months. Uh, we've got the Doctor Strange comic book reviews, which we're going to be covering. Uh, hopefully, we're going to start off with the Mark Raid run in the next couple of weeks. Um, he's got the first four issues, uh, should be out by now, uh, to read. And there is a tie-in to the Infinity Wars story arc. So so uh, looking forward to covering those ones. Uh, also, obviously, the big one for us, because we are Defenders TV podcast, the podcast about the Netflix Marvel Defenders. We have Iron Fist Season 2 beginning on Friday, the 7th of September. Really excited to be covering that one. Yes. Yes, I think we're, we're really looking forward to, um, especially from my side, um, John is the Doctor Strange officiado fanatic uh, fan. Um, uh, but actually, from what I'm hearing, this Mark Wade run is pretty good yeah it's been really um, enjoyable. yeah i'm really interested to really see interesting what, it, what it's about um but as you said we are defenders netflix review show if you want to call it that uh and iron fist 2 season 2 is coming and i can't wait what i have seen and i'm not doing what i did in luke cage which is going in blind um i have literally watched the two trailers i believe that have come out yeah teasers yeah yeah. Teasers, not mm-hmm. even trailers, yes, teasers. And I am dying for this now. Yeah. They're all, yeah. they're going heavy on the marketing because it's cutting through to my fiance's mar- uh, Facebook and Instagram. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Literally, it <laughs> cut through to her and she's like, what's this? And when is it out? Yeah, that's really good, though. Because season one really didn't have that much um, hype or marketing buzz around it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's good to see this getting a bit more love from the producers, I suppose, and the studio or the, you know, the company that makes it really, um, because he's a fab, fab character and he will be on Defenders TV podcast in September from Friday the 7th. And also probably our last opportunity to talk about another fab, fab character uh, that you can access through stitcher.com premium uh, is Wolverine with the scripted podcast by Marvel, Wolverine The Long Night, starring Richard Armitage uh, as the titular hero. And of course, uh, a very much a investigative procedural there with Wolverine that is available to defenders to our fellow defenders um, until September of this year so only uh, three weeks left roughly uh, where you can go in and submit the promo code defenders uh, to get a month's free access yes go to stitcher.com slash premium and pop in our code defenders uh, helps out the show and uh, gives you access to that excellent Wolverine the Long Night if you haven't listened to it yet a great thing to cover the time between now and Iron Fist uh, definitely well worth it but guys I think it's time to get into our discussion of Ant-Man and the Wasp sure yes so Derek what are some of the movie details that you have for us well this movie was directed once again by Peyton Reed who directed the first Ant-Man and stayed on board for the second one which is really good obviously has a bit of an insight into the character and does really enjoy uh, working with this character Uh, lots of writers in this one Uh, this one was written by Chris McKenna and Eric Summers who started out together on Community much like the wonderful guys who do the uh, Captain America movies yes Um, the Russo brothers that's right yeah Uh, so they obviously deep dive into the Community uh, writers rooms to, uh, to pick out these people for Marvel. They've obviously got a good style for Marvel. Uh, but they also went on to write the Lego Batman movie. They wrote 
Chris, Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, they've also written Spider-Man Far From Home as well. And this year they wrote Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, which I really enjoyed. I thought that was a good, fun movie. If you haven't watched it, go check it out. It's definitely worth uh, worth an hour or two of your time. So um, so obviously they've got a lot on their plate and lots of, uh, lots of things to write. Every single one of those is a funny film in just the, the basics, but every single one of them has action. Even Lego Batman, which went slightly off the wall towards the end. Mm. Well, like really off the wall towards the end. Yeah. I expected to like that more than I did as a Batman fan. Yeah, exactly. I'm the same yeah. as you. It and, was a little weird. And having played all three of the Lego Batman games as well, I kind yeah. of expected to like it a bit more. But anyway, they did bring us the wonderful Spider-Man Homecoming, and they'll be bringing us Far From Home, which will feature, we found out this week, Nick Fury and uh, Kobe Smulders will be back as well uh, in the Spider-Man uh, Far From Home. So very excited that we might see a bit of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. possibly bringing Agent Coulson back into the fold as the guide for Spider-Man, like he is in yeah. the Marvel cartoon universe, uh, Marvel Ultimates, I think. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, I think okay, we can. T- I could talk for years about Far From Home uh-huh. and what it could be and what it's potentially about. What's interesting here is Chris and Eric write relationships very well, mm-hmm. complicated relationships. So what we see in this film in bet- between Paul Rudd and uh, Evangelina Lily. Like that, that that complicated relationship, they write that well. So I think what we'll see in Spider-Man and what we saw in Spider-Man Homecoming about difficult relationships and how they kind of deal with different people between father, daughter, father who is a supervillain and the, the potential boyfriend of her his daughter who is potentially a superhero. Yeah, it could be quite interesting. <laughs> That's a really interesting uh, version. I'm not sure I followed the plot of that one, but hopefully I'll follow the plot of the movie. <laughs> but thanks to thanks to Chris McKenna and Eric Summers. <laughs> and uh, do you think this is the new stick now where they need to have home in the title of the the Spider-Man? So Spider-Man 3 will be Home Help or Maybe. something. <laughs> I, I don't know. Is that and is it just to simply get the Spider-Man logo? Into the titles. I know, yeah, that's kind of interesting, Chad, yes. <laughs> Possibly. Kind of intrigued. <laughs> Possibly. There's loads of other words with O in it, though. Or is it, Chris, is home something special for Spider-Man? With Aunt yeah. May and Uncle Ben? Well, that's where I always find my spiders is in my home. They're always yeah, in the corner of every room. <laughs> Spider-Man Attic is not going to be the name of the next movie. Though. Uh, but this movie also featured a number of other writers. Paul Rudd got another writing credit uh, on this movie. Uh, he did come in late into uh, Ant-Man and was a writer in the writer's room that time. Um, it's, he's been credited as the person that kind of brought the story together between Chris McKenna and Eric Summers and the other writers, Andrew Barrier and Gabriel Ferreira. Uh, they did a lot of work on the script, but Paul Rudd was always there. I think he was referred to by Peyton Reed as his writer on set. So anytime they had to come up with, you know, five or six different takes of a line, they'd go to Paul and ask him to do a couple of treatments on it. So that's why he has the writer's credit on, on there. But understandably, he does seem to really love playing this part of of, uh, of Ant-Man and Scott Lang. Can I just jump back quickly to uh, Peyton Reed? Okay, yeah, yeah. So when we reviewed Ant-Man, number mm-hmm. one, um, there obviously there is a bit of a sordid history with Ant-Man as the as a as a, a, a property in that Edgar Wright was supposed to write and direct uh, then that was potentially dropped or fired who knows anyway Peyton Reed came on towards the three-quarter mark I think it was something like three or four weeks before she yeah. was very very close to yeah to the movie yeah yeah so what I'm really happy to see is 
Peyton Reed really his style was that th- was the same. So what we saw in the comedic elements that we saw in Ant Man One, mm-hmm. and what we see here, this is quite similar. We very much everyone always thought that Ant Man was pretty much a uh, an Edgar Wright film yeah. with like, <laughs> but Peyton Reed's kind of just light touches around it. But what we're seeing is actually in Ant Man and the Wasp. No, Ant Man One was Peyton Reed's film. It yeah. was solely his style. But yeah, I do remember at the time when the people were going, those moments were great. They must have been Edgar Wright's and Peyton Reed was going, no, no, that was me. But now we all believe him because he's made another film like that. So uh, not sure how much was actually taken from Edgar Wright in the first place. But John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for this movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp? Sure. Um, But just quickly as well, I don't know whether this was as funny as Ant-Man. I think we'll definitely be talking about that. We will maybe discuss that. Mm -hmm. So on with the synopsis. Scott Lang is under house arrest two years after battling alongside Captain America in Civil War. Scott has a dream of Janet Van Dyne, the wife of his former partner Hank Pym. He reaches out to Hank to tell him about the dream. Meanwhile, Hank and his daughter Hope Van Dyne have been building a gateway to the quantum realm to retrieve Janet. They have been on the run from the FBI because of Scott using the Ant-Man tech during the Civil War. Working with the underworld boss Sonny Birch to get the parts, they cross paths with Ghost, a young woman who believes her phasing in and out of reality can only be cured by dragging the quantum energy from Janet's body. It's a race against time as Hank, Hope, Scott and his team race to reach Janet in the quantum realm before Sonny steals their mobile laboratory and Ghost now teamed with another former partner of Hank, Dr. Bill Foster, kills Janet Van Dyme for their own purposes. A reasonably straightforward movie, this one. Um, Probably the most straightforward of the plot lines that we've seen. It's very much, we need to get this, and these are the obstacles in our way. We will retrieve it. That's kind of the simplicity of the story overall, isn't it? The Ant-Man films have always been simple. The Mm. first one was a heist film. A simple heist film. This one is a simple... Retrieval, mm-hmm. yeah, rescue, rescue, rescue movie, mission. yeah, yeah. Uh, like it's really compact. I think, as mentioned before, and obviously needs to be compact. It's about ants and mm-hmm. and and wasps. It adds a, a nice, different perspective and scale for the Marvel universe. These these movies, um, it's small and and it's intimate rather than being huge and epic. I mean, you know, if you compare this with Avengers Infinity War, um, going across space, through time, so many different characters, tying together so many different threads from the previous MCU, uh, here, um, it very much is a, a simple rescue movie of Janet Van Dyme, who was lost to the quantum realm when Hope was a teeny tiny girl so i think it just provides a bit more opportunity to to look at these characters that inhabit this world because you don't need too much exposition uh, on on the plot yeah yeah and speaking of which that does kind of bring us directly into our points for this episode um i couldn't think of any fun pun about ants that would give me any of the points so we're just going to go with point one to five our top five points about at man and the wasp first up really is that the story is about the search for janet van dyne we did know from ant man the first movie that janet was in the quantum realm and that obviously scott had gone in to visit there so uh, there is very much a possibility that, that was the lead-in for this storyline um but overall this is the story of hope and hank trying to find 
their mother and wife, respectively. Um, interestingly, I thought if Scott hadn't had that vision, um, would he have necessarily needed to be in the movie? Because this movie is very much the story of these two people trying to find their mother or, or mother and wife rather than it being about Ant-Man. Yeah. Yes, he would, essentially, because they, due to his falling into the quantum, Jennifer Dine was able to contact him. Mm -hmm. Their formula algorithm was off and wrong, yes. so they never would have found her coordinates. Yeah, that's exactly my point. If he didn't have this vision, he wouldn't have been in the movie, because the movie is about them building a way oh. to get Janet back. Apologies, yes. Yeah. This is a Wasp film. Mm -hmm. It should be the Wasp and Antoine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They have basically supersized her role, and they call it out very much so in this film, which is they should have included her in civil in Captain America's Civil War. Mm. And they call it out, which is like him asking, if I had have asked you, would you have gone? And she just, just doesn't answer that, where we know, yes, she would have. Yeah. She had been the Wasp. She is a better fight, kung fu fighter than him. She has blasters and wings. He doesn't. Yeah. But at the time of Civil War, remember, we'd not seen the Wasp in action at all. This is the first time we're seeing Wasp in action, so they definitely couldn't have put her in the movie because nobody knew to contact her, I suppose, is, is the point. Scott didn't even know that she was the Wasp until this movie. Yeah, and I, I think the interesting thing here is that there is obviously that distance personally between Scott and uh, Hope, but also um, that distance between Scott and Hank. I, I, and I think this is quite interesting, is that, you know, it's nothing to do with Civil War in terms of whether they're for or against, say, the uh, Sokovia Accords, but it is to do with the fact that, you know, Hank believes that Scott has used his tech that's put them on the radar of the police here. Mm -hmm. So they're actually on the run. Um, and, and there is that distance. And in a sense, you know, the first time they meet up, when they realize that Scott has had this dream of Janet uh, Van Dyne, it's all quite frosty. It's a little awkward. Oh, yeah. um, and because they're still dealing with the consequences of Scott having gone to Germany and sided with Captain America. Scott, in a sense, has gone past that because he is at the moment under house arrest. So I do like the fact that they're not really a, a, a grouping. And I think that they're working together, you know, in spite of one another here. Mm. I really enjoyed that dynamic here uh, yeah, between definitely. these. Um, the other thing as well, just in terms of the search for Janet Van Dyne, I have to just call out straight off the top, um, Michelle Pfeiffer, she is a goddess. Um, I absolutely loved her as Janet Van Dyne and mm -hmm. she didn't have much screen time. I wanted more of Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie. Uh, I really wanted to see more of the quantum realm. I would have loved if there had been more of the story in the quantum dimension, uh, trying to find Janet and even um, more of Janet because I thought she was elevatory for this movie. I absolutely agree with you. Michelle Pfeiffer is always wonderful uh, when you yeah. see her in, in roles like this. But it was a real surprise to see her just at the opening of the movie in that wonderful de-aged version that Marvel are getting so, so good at. And then not see her again till pretty much the end of the movie. And her not to be a very active character. I kind of thought, and we'll talk about a little bit of this later on, I kind of thought you could have had her out of the quantum realm and curing Ghost a little bit later in the movie. The two of those separated, have her back somewhere in the middle of the movie and then... Um, and then she 
goes and does what she does at the end of the movie uh, and have a little bit more time with her, with her family. I just thought that would have been nice to see Michelle Pfeiffer for longer on screen. But that's kind of always my complaint with Michelle Pfeiffer. She never gets enough screen time for me. Yeah. I mean, even if it was that Ghost had to go into the quantum Mm -hmm. realm in order to extract the quantum energy from Janet, you Mm -hmm. know, that more of this had taken place in the quantum realm uh, would have... Uh, significantly ticked two checkboxes for me, which was more Michelle, more Quantum. And interestingly, this is a Marvel Studios decision. It was the same decision that they made on Doctor Strange, that you can't have a film half set in another realm. That's very much, they say, they need five or six minutes, no more, no less kind of thing, when you're talking about another realm. They want to ground things. They want to have them in the regular universe for standard film goers, not for big Marvel nerds like us. Uh, I know you had a similar thing about the fantastic scenes that were in Doctor Strange um, that you wanted a little bit more because they were so amazing at seeing these other realms. But it is a decision of Marvel Studios to say, actually, we're going to limit the time. I get that if you're just simply introducing it completely. Um, But I think... In terms of world creation, mm-hmm. um, if, if that's where the world is or the reality that you're dealing with at the moment, then it's quite nice to to explore that and, and get informed about it because that's where it's happening. Yeah, yeah. Chris? As much as I like Michelle Pfeiffer, she really had no effect on this film. It was The, the goal was to find her, mm-hmm. but <laughs> she came in at the beginning and then disappeared right to the end. I think because I love Michelle Pfeiffer, I think it's that moment where you're going, the film starts off, again, wonderfully with that DH Michelle Pfeiffer, giving you that moment of going, oh, I remember when she was like that and how wonderful an actress she is. That's great. And for the rest of the film, it's not, can they save Jana Van Dyne? It's, when's Michelle Pfeiffer going to get here? How are they going to get Michelle Pfeiffer into the movie? So it's great. It's one of those kind of Alfred Hitchcock things where you cast a character because people love them and people want to see them on screen, but actually you only give them three minutes of her on screen. Yeah, I mean, she she is the whole reason for the movie, ultimately. So she does have a central point to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I wanted to see more of her. As you say, Chris, she's not really in this movie. Um, and I, and I think it's just because as well, that moment where she does actually, um, escape and get rescued, uh, from the, the quantum dimension uh, and she reunites with Hope Van Dyne. I thought that was a really great moment between these two characters. And even with Hank in the quantum realm, I thought that was great. I absolutely loved those moments mm-hmm. of the, of her being reunited with her husband and her daughter. And I, I thought it really added a lot of heart to this movie. Um, because that was the central premise around it was this reuniting of this family. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying anything about Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> what we're going to end up is, I think, Janet Van Dyne, the reason they haven't included her much in this is because she's too powerful. Um, basically, what we're going to find out is that the quantum realm changes you. Mm-hmm. They allude to this fact at the end. Yeah. That she is now more than Janet Van Dyne. She is more than human. Absolutely, yes. yes. And... She has the power to heal, uh, quote-unquote, because she does that to uh, one of our big villains, which we'll get to in a kind of second, third point. But actually beyond that, yeah, she leads there being a lot more in the quantum realm than kind of what there is. Absolutely. Essentially, what I think we're going to end up finding is Janet Van Dyne, Michelle 
Fighter. She will be back. She will be back in Affinity Wars Part 2. I'm not sure what we're calling it. I don't think there is an official name yet. There's not. Game. Nope, definitely. You did see the end credits. We will talk about those as we get into the episode. <laughs> so I think, well, I think while this film is a search for her, they had to leave it at that. They had to leave it as the search because essentially if you bring her back midway through the film, mm-hmm. there is no film because she is overpowered. Well, no, I think there is. I think the film is, you know, that is part of it. But if the film is about ghost searching for her resolution and searching for her cure, you could have actually split it a bit differently. You could have had the search for Tana Van Dyne, they get her back, and then Ghost is still after her. So I think you could have slid it slightly separately. It didn't need to end as Janet comes back. I think I think that's just it's just a personal choice. I think it just yeah. could have had a bit more of Michelle Pfeiffer in there. But while we're talking about the search for Janet Van which again does cover so many points, we don't want to just use this as our only point, but it does give us one of probably my favourite Paul Rudd moments that has ever been on screen. Um, yes. As he gets possessed by Janet Van Dyne from the quantum realm, and we have Paul Rudd reacting with Hank and with Hope. That is one of my favourite moments. Paul does a great job of embodying Michelle Pfeiffer. But my only problem with it is that it means that Michelle Pfeiffer's Janet Van Dyne doesn't get to do that moment. It's given to Paul Rudd. She doesn't get that moment of reuniting with her family in this way. She has to reunite with them through Paul Rudd. Through well, Scott yeah, Lang. I mean, she, she calls it out with, I didn't want it to be it, it, it this way. Mm-hmm. And she actually does. And again, I completely agree. I thought this was hilarious. I think this was one of the best uh, fun comedic moments um, of of this movie. Um it just hammed it up really nicely. And I think Paul Rudd is master of doing that. And, you know, it was a little silly, but fun silly. So for me, completely agree. The possession of Scott Lang, fantastic. But she does get to reunite yes. physically at the end. So, I mean, she kind of gets to do it twice. Um, so I, I didn't really have much of a, uh, say, an, an issue with that, to be honest. But Certainly a great moment uh, where he's holding hands with them. He's kind of playing around with Hank's ear and so on. Just a nice comedic touch. Yeah, really good. I have other more preferable Paul Rudd moments in this film. Okay. I will not take away from the scene, though. This scene made me out loud laugh. Yes, yes. Paul Rudd slash Scott Lang, he does quasi Michelle Pfeiffer quirk very well scarily well uh and it's just like it was even from the his posture changed when he was first at the computer yeah um it was, it was definitely an interesting take and i like how hank picks up on it so quickly you know that's his wife there you know in inside the body of another man i love that hank just picks up on it very quickly he's kind of going hold on a second that's that's janet that's not scott yeah just because of the mannerisms that that, uh, that paul rudd puts into that performance really good really good stuff um is that it for our point number one guys is there anything else on the search for janet van dyne overall that you guys want to talk about i think it's mainly i just want to quickly come back on sort of quantum realm element here because you know there was that suggestion that this movie would have information that would link in some way to the um Infinity Wars, particularly in terms of the link between quantum realm, quantum dimension, and the soul uh, realm, uh, the soul stone realm. Okay. Uh, and that, you know, there would be 
it's one of the ways in which they could bring them back. And I don't think there was too much in this movie that really highlighted any connection. I think other than the fact, and I suppose this moves into our point number two in relation to our villains, which is Ghost, which shows that people who effectively are disappearing, so she was going to disappear, can be phased back into reality through the quantum energy. Interesting. Um, now, I don't know whether that is anything that will come up in Infinity Wars Part 2. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I want to see more about the Quantum Realm. I want to see how did it link to possibly the Soul Gem uh, and in terms of all those lives that have, have been lost. And um, because you can move through different, because it's so small. I mean, we get that sense at the start where she has to go down to the quantum level in order to move through that missile so that they can deactivate it and save the world from nuclear obliteration. But that, you know, in terms of quantum, you're going even smaller that maybe you can pass through the fabric of different dimensions and realms, mm-hmm. time and space and into the, that soul world where people have disappeared. So I, I don't know. Um, but I, I thought that was really interesting. I think it does, you know, ghost very unusual antagonist here really uh within this movie uh you know treatment i think quite different from any other evil not as such fully evil really and actually you can really feel for why she is doing this um unfortunately maybe the outcome for poor janet is is obviously that she will die as a result of that or again be lost to the quantum realm and so i thought this was really interesting um that link here with ghost uh, and that phasing out that you know that slow phasing out uh of her physical body uh in the quantum realm interesting I think we had a bit of a MacGuffin here, and I, I, I don't call that out often, right? I, I don't want to be that guy. This is fun. It's an action film. It's a bit for everyone. But what I do think is there is very little connection between this and Infinity Wars. As you said, we were led to believe that we would find out a lot more. Now, nothing was officially said, but there was some hints in some interviews, things like that. So nothing was ever said like, find out more about the Affinity War 2 in Ant-Man and the Wasp. So like they never went like that, but there was a few hints, Mm -hmm. things like that. So I did not see it, and I do not see it. No. I think essentially what we get is an answer to where the hell Ant-Man was. Yeah. You're right. We get to see more about the quantum realm. There is this one theory, okay, that Captain Marvel will be stuck in the quantum realm mm. and she was with uh Janet Van Dyne for the whole time since the ni- since the end of her film maybe in the 90s maybe up until this the 20 years p- prior right there is a thought that that's what has happened yeah and then this is how she meets Scott Lang now there that is a potential but I think the only thing connection the main connection that this film has to Infinity War 1 and Infinity War 2 is where the hell was that yeah, and I think that's yeah. one huge compliment I'll pay Peyton Reed and the writers of this movie is this movie did not need to be Infinity War Part 1.2 or Part 1.3. No, not at all. I never wanted this movie to answer questions that are going to be answered next summer because I'm really waiting for the second part of Avengers. I didn't want to go in here and find 
oh, actually, Ant-Man has the cure to everything in his hands. So now I have to wait till next year just for him to use that cure. That would be a bit boring. Uh, the fact that this was a complete standalone movie from opening credits to, to closing credits and then post-credit scenes tied in a little bit and told you that information. In fact, this movie takes place after Civil War. We hear about two years after Civil War. The end of the film happens before anything happens in New York. So nothing connected to Infinity War. And then the post-credit scene takes place at the same time as Infinity War, which is what we find out. So yeah. none of this takes place during the time of Infinity War. There was no phone call going to come from Black Widow going, do you want to join us in Wakanda? Because the entire film took place in the, the interim space between Civil War and uh, and Infinity War. No, absolutely. Um, that is, is fine with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was just more within the quantum realm. It was... You know, there were theories posited and it was kind of, you know, okay, these are really intriguing because it could link in with, with Ant-Man. And, um, and I don't mean in a direct way in that it was the main reason for the story, but I think more as to the possibilities mm-hmm. or the hints or the, the Easter eggs that you could get from that. And um, the only Easter egg I really kind of, as I say, is this suggestion that you can bring people back mm-hmm. uh, into a physical being through quantum energy and the only other easter egg was actually with star trek discovery in that the organism that drives the uh, quantum drive on discovery are those same bugs that you see in the quantum realm that's right yes yeah interesting one there (laughs) yeah so missed that oh my god yes yeah so the thing that drives um, Discovery, you see Hank Pym, uh, you know, I think he's just been knocked off course and the, the computer in his little um, vehicle is resetting the coordinates as three of the, I can't remember what the name of uh, the bug is called. I keep thinking troglodyte, but that's something completely different, mm-hmm. um, are starting to close in on him. And that's the same organism. That is cool. Dude, I did not connect that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Gentlemen, um, speaking of uh, a big bug to what about a big bad? Mm-hmm. Moving on to point two of our discussion, the villains. Yeah, yeah. So we essentially have two villains. Yes. Yeah. Potentially three, and I can get into that. The first we have is Ghost, mm-hmm. whose main motive is a cure for what else are. I know they didn't play up the humor, but there is definitely humor in the idea of what poor Ghost is going through and has been going through since her father was damaged by the experiment with Hank Pym. She's effectively been phasing in and out all the time. How annoying must that be when you're trying to, you know, open a door and your hand goes through the door, you know? You're trying to carry a tray of drinks for your guests and it falls through your hands because you've phased out of existence, you know? It must be really, really irritating. They definitely didn't play up the comedy in there, which they probably should have done a little bit with it. Uh, It just seems like an absolute pain for Ghost all the way throughout her life. So I totally understand why she's willing to sacrifice everything, the life of another, to save her own life and get a cure, because it looks so annoying. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she is certainly unconventional with regards to a villain, and I mean, ultimately, she's the villain of the piece because her plan really uh, will end Janet, uh, Mm -hmm. because she will... You know, it's that Janet has been soaking up all this energy um, and that by extracting it in some way from Janet through that chamber that has been built by Dr. Bill Foster, who used to work with Hank, that she can then 
return to her true physical form without this phasing. I thought the phasing effects was really, really cool. And I, I mean, in terms of the fights that she had with Wasp um, and, and Ant-Man and the chase scenes, really cool how she phased in and out. Um, I just thought it was really so well done, yeah. all of that. Um, you know, even on on her own, but you combine um, both Ant-Man and Hope Van Dyne uh, going big, small, and all that, and then her phasing in and out is really, really cool. Yeah. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, but it's definitely unconventional. And I thought that made it really pretty interesting because, um, you know, maybe questionable bad guy, but certainly antagonist, yeah. but ultimately she is saved by the person she was trying to kill in the end. And I, I really, uh, liked that. Yeah. No, really, really liked it. Um, one question about the ghost. I, my understanding is that she can control her powers for limited periods of time. That's why when she returns to, I guess, her hideaway, um, she has to go in and power herself up or go into that machine to keep the phasing at bay. It's because she's used the phasing and has control of it at times. Is that right? Yeah, and the suit gives her control, she was saying, at least in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole, the whole thing is that like she has, she's consistently phasing at all times. Like she, it's just permeating through. Her. But essentially, the more she tries to control it, the more she uses it, quote mm-hmm. unquote. The closer, the faster she moves towards death, where she will just phase out of existence. Yes, yeah. Or her cells in her body just die, and she phases out. Yeah, and I know you wanted to mention this, Chris, and I know you've slightly mentioned it as well. Um, the third villain of the movie. I didn't want to put it in as one of our villains, really. Dr. Bill Foster, um, who is known to comic book fans as the character Goliath from uh, the 70s, a former partner of Hank Pym, another one that he's peed off. Uh, he doesn't seem yeah. to last very long with partners. Right from the first time we saw him in the first Ant-Man, we saw him piss off everybody in uh, in S.H.I.E.L.D. by not giving them the tech. We see a lot of his partners just seem to have fallen away over the years. But I think Dr. Bill Foster is quite interesting in this movie in the fact that He's just trying to help out somebody who was left in the wake of the experiments of Hank Pym. Um, he doesn't feel like a villain at all in the slightest. In fact, multiple times he's trying to convince ghosts there are maybe other ways to cure you, but he's still willing to help her out. And this is what I'm really happy with in the MCU. For 20 films, there has been some feedback that Marvel films have a villain problem. What I love is... Throughout 20 films now, we are getting villains with more depth, with more character, and more motivations. Mm. Okay? So, typically, you would get a character, the villain of a film, the supervillain, I want to rule the world. Here, we have a villain who was is a super-trained assassin, mm-hmm. Could become a mercenary for hire or whatever. Mm-hmm. No, I just want to be normal. I just want to live. Yeah, yeah, and that was my point about in Bill Foster um, was he's kind of a villain, but he's not really yeah. because yeah. he just wants to help a, a girl who he's sworn to help. Yeah, he's like, I will help fix you, even if it means doing bad things. And the reason and- he's done it is because 
it was Hank's fault. And in some small way, because he worked with Hank for many years, it's also his fault. He takes yeah. responsibility for it. He yeah. feels that Hank isn't taking responsibility for it. He feels that Hank does these experiments and doesn't ask that question of, should I be doing them? Because what's it doing to other people? And I do think, I mean, I, I agree with you, Chris, uh, on, on what you're saying, but I do think it, there is a, an issue as to whether they actually are villains. They probably aren't. I think they're more antagonists because what they're, trying to do is nothing particularly evil but the means by which ghost has to do it puts them at odds with hope uh hank and and scott and 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 even you know you can understand given hank pym why bill foster you you can understand that even the backstory of ghost with her father Mm -hmm. and being made to feel inferior or stupid despite his abilities and his theories and him trying to do stuff for uh pym industries you you see that hank is a difficult man to be with because he's probably a bit like reed richards he's so intelligent that no one else really cuts the mustard Mm -hmm. other than his wife and his daughter in that sense. Uh, and he pushes his colleagues and other people away. So um I, I think the issue here for me was that in terms of the other possible villain in Sonny, I didn't really get him at all in this movie. Yeah, I thought it was just like he was there to provide a villain ultimately. Um, You know, that more traditional enemy he wanted to steal the the lab um, and and sell the tech that that Hank had had developed, and it seemed a complete um, aside. In fact, it seemed a almost doing what had happened in Ant Man, the original movie. Yeah. It just that in this case he was a crook uh, rather than an official crook that heads another corporation. Provided some great chase scenes. Don't get me wrong, but I did not get Sonny in this movie. It was just like. When I was watching the movie, all of a sudden, he was there. Yeah. And he stuck around and suddenly was after this lab. And I was like, I don't get his role here. Yeah, when I was writing my notes for the film, I had to just think about it so long. Why is Sonny in this film at all? It's because he finds out that Hope Van Dyne is the daughter of Hank. And if he gets into the lab, then he'll have loads of tech to sell. And it just felt like not enough of a motivator to keep him around for two hours of a movie or an hour and a half actually it's one of the shortest uh, marvel movies and they always try and keep these under two hours because they're supposed to be a comedy movie so they like to keep them a bit shorter than the others but um it just didn't seem like enough of a motivator and one of the points that you made there john about them being antagonists i didn't want to use that in this movie (laughs) to be honest because it's ant-man the wasp their antagonists i just felt it was a little bit of a pun but i didn't i have noticed over the last couple of years when they have interviews with some of the cast members and men and if anybody says you know the villain in this movie is really good or do you like playing the role of the villain the response from the actors have very much been we call them antagonists at marvel studios um it is a definite decision of marvel to move towards antagonists people that have good motivations but are contrary to the to the superheroes rather than being villains like you would have in comic books back in the 70s and 80s they they seem to try to go for complex people who are opposite or opposing our heroes rather than just villains that is great if that that's what they want to try and do i think it's only since black panther and killmonger and then thanos that they really really got away with this I disagree, Chris, because we talked about it all the way back to Civil War. You know, we've had some great antagonists in 
the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, there is definitely a problem. And I think Ant-Man is probably the biggest example, the first movie, of one of the worst attempts at a villain. Because, like Sonny in this movie, his motivation isn't enough to carry you going, will Ant-Man win or will the villain win? You're going, I don't really care. This guy's going to make a billion dollars or he's not. It doesn't really matter to my universe. <laughs> you know. Um, whereas someone like Ghost, you kind of go, is she going to win? Which means... Is this poor girl who got these powers, I suppose, from an accidental experiment that she wasn't even involved in and then turned into a killer by shield? Is she going to get her life back and get a cure? That's a much more interesting concept for this movie. So really excited about that. I think Sonny's a replacement. I think they were originally going to potentially use someone else. Mm -hmm. And I can think of two characters who potentially fit this. The biggest being is uh, Clock. Ulysses Claw from... Um, yeah, Ulysses Claw from, uh, from Black Panther. From Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he is one of the biggest mercenaries we have. Mm-hmm. I think he would have made an interesting usage in this, but they probably wrote the part like that, and then after watching... Well, obviously, this is not, they didn't just watch Black <laughs> Panther and then go, oh my God, they killed the character. Well, good, there goes I. Probably there was a discussion point in that. Maybe, maybe, yeah. I'm 100% with you. I just feel Sonny is nothing more than a plot device. Yeah, yeah. He is there to give us, as you say, some cool car chases. He's there to give us that scene where they're surrounded by FBI agents. And he's there to give us a really cool scene with Michael Pena later. I kind of agree, though. I think given that we know that Hank and Hope are on the run from the FBI. The FBI could have given us the chase scenes. They could have given us that big scene with um, Louis. All that could have been done using the FBI mm-hmm. rather than introducing random Sonny um, who seems to have no point. Um, and I think that's a big failing, quite frankly, of this movie because it was like I cared not one jot for Sonny yeah. at all. I think you're absolutely right. I think we could have absolutely seen Jimmy Woo do the, do all those chase scenes that could have been just as much fun. Do we see Jimmy Woo as a villain? Yeah, possibly. Um, I don't know whether we're supposed to see the FBI as villains. I think because of the fact that it is Scott Lang and he's been under house arrest from, from the FBI, I guess antagonist is absolutely the right word for them. Can I just say, as I've mentioned many, many times before, I'm a huge fan of Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. Jimmy Woo is a character that went all the way from the 60s uh, with Nick Fury. He's been a character that's been in S.H.I.E.L.D. He was originally a character, um, an agent of Atlas. He was in Atlas Comics back before Marvel Comics even started. He's been around for decades. And it's great to see him on screen. I was so happy to see him on screen. I think he's one of the funniest things in the film, just the kind of not bumbling FBI agent. An FBI agent who's really good at his job, but who's being foiled at many many moments uh, and does have some wonderful moments. I think his moment with Cassie is probably my favorite when he starts to explain to her as a child, you know, do you know what's going on with your daddy and then gets into all the legal ramifications of everything that's going <laughs> yeah, on. Absolutely. I think that was uh, one that made me laugh out loud in the movie as Scott looks over at him going, you have not dealt with kids very often. Have you <laughs> really enjoyable? But, yeah. but then the scene with the magic, I, I, I am <laughs> with you a hundred percent on the character of Jimmy Woo. I think they should include him in where in, in the new version of Shield. Oh, if there is in that at some point in the future, we're going to have to have Shield will be rebuilt in uh, the the cinematic universe, not the TV universe. The same universe, Chris. 
No, okay. In the cinematic versus televised sections. Mm-hmm. In other words, what I would love to see is a Jimmy Woo and Nick Fury and Maria Hill uh, as that kind of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. section. And then we have the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show with Phil Coulson and all that. Uh, but I really like him as a character. And mm-hmm. I would yeah, not me like too. To see him, I'd like to see him cross over, what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Even if it's just in parts, he could become another Phil Coulson, but he he Phil Coulson with comic relief, almost. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know what That's I'd love to see, true. like the way they used to do it back with the Captain America movie and uh, Civil War and that kind of stuff. The way they used to do that, where those are the characters that you bring over onto the Agents of Shield TV show. So we have season six of Agents of Shield coming up next summer, um, ten to thirteen episodes, I believe. Um, I'd love to see Jimmy Woo appear in there as the FBI liaison officer dealing with Phil Coulson or dealing with Daisy Johnson, something like that. I'd love to see his character appear in other shows and movies where you need an FBI character. Um, now you've got him established, and he was really, really enjoyable in the movie. I'm in full agreement. So, gentlemen, uh, speaking of Sonny's usage uh, point of being there to give us some fantastic San Francisco chase scenes, mm-hmm. let's talk about them. Let's talk about point three, which is San Francisco as a whole. And my God, those micro machines that are amazing. <laughs> yeah. Hot Wheels, the Hot Wheels. Hot Wheels, yes. Yeah. So good. Um, I, I mean... I think the only thing I can really say here is I just thought the action and the chase was amazing. I think in particular that moment where you have Ghost uh, take up one of the, the motorcycles, you've got Giant Man effectively here, Giant Ant-Man with the, uh, with the truck. You've got Hope Van Dyme phasing in and out. I mean, that moment where she swings out uh, of the car and with, goes from small to big and then kicks out uh, members of Sonny's gang from the back seat. Mm-hmm. It's just like intense. It's so, so good. It's fantastic direction from, uh, Peyton Reed here and really good, uh, action scenes, which I think are some of the best in the Marvel universe because that, that, that physical action of them doing it along with the special effects of them going small, big, uh, phasing and the phasing of Ghost. I thought it was phenomenal. I really enjoyed it uh, so, so much. Yeah. Uh, and this is a massive plus uh, for the movie, uh, for me. Definitely. I'm really interested that the whole chase scene is about them trying to catch a building that's moving from hands to hands. <laughs> They're trying to catch the lab that's moving from hands to hand. I love that when they eventually get their hands on the lab, they realize actually the controller that needs to be used to make it big is in the hands of Lewis. So another chase starts all over again. Uh, really good fun to keep it going the way they have. Um, interestingly, the first movie for Ant-Man was called the heist movie of, uh, of the cinematic universe of the Marvel cinematic universe. Weirdly, after coming out of this movie, I thought this movie could have been called the special effects movie of the Marvel cinematic universe. Isn't that a bit odd after 20 movies where we have CGI characters in there, tons of them, this is the movie that feels like the special effects budget is used in almost every scene. It feels like they enhance almost every scene with a character growing large or growing small, as opposed to it being a story or a heist movie or a, or any other type of action movie. It just feels like this is the one they went all out on going, right, we're going to make this as exciting as possible by using our CGI budget to do small, big and uh, every other version of, um, of CGI that they could, or every other version of special effects that they could in this movie. Well, they're limited with a power set here. 
Batman and the Wasp can get big, they can get small. Mm-hmm. Or except in one part where you can get like child size, which was <laughs> oh, yeah. so funny. So funny. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that scene is literally just in there to have that jokes, those jokes, which I was, I'm fine with. They were great. Jokes. Yeah, me too. It really did feel like something out of Deadpool, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it felt it like really one of those ones did. where the tech breaks, so uh, so Deadpool has to has to deal with a, a situation. Paul Rudd does a great job, and yeah. weirdly, the moment within that scene where he grows to a medium size and he's about three foot tall, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, the scene that made me laugh was just that moment where you see Hope and him walking down the steps outside the school after successfully <laughs> retrieving um, the cup, wasn't it from uh, yeah. from Cassie's World's bag? Greatest granddad, uh, yeah, grandma. Yeah, <laughs> but just that moment when the two of them are walking down the steps, just the interaction between the two of them worked really well and made me laugh uh, quite a lot. Really good. But even better is like, do you want a juice box and mm-hmm. uh, something? And he goes, do you really have them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my biggest laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, I very much feel that the the chase scenes, the action, they they essentially looked at okay, what did we do in the last one? Okay. How can we do that slightly differently? Uh, and what what has not been done with these characters? They didn't repeat anything in particular. Mm-hmm. In that, when she fired, uh, when Hope fires at the motorbike and turns the motorbike really small while the guy is riding it, mm-hmm. you could have done that for multiple. Like, okay, she's going to hit every single one of the bikes quickly and they all get small. No, no, no. They they decided, okay, well, we use that one now. So what, what? how else could we... Okay, well, let's make it... Guy's probably sitting there in the writer's room eating a Pez. She has a Pez. She throws that at them. Yeah. And that's a really good way to get Hello Kitty in there or kind of something hilarious. That's the nod to Deadpool, by the way, I'm pretty uh-huh. sure. <laughs> but it, I think that's what they did. They were like, what are all the cool things that these power sets can give us what have we seen? What mm-hmm. haven't we seen? And let's do that. And I get what you're coming from with the special effects. I didn't feel that. We can't get a, a spy noir film with Paul Rudd ever, like we did with Captain America. Mm-hmm. And especially like with Captain America, his the Civil War, the Winter Soldier, like those power sets lend itself to that. This power sets essentially allows lends themselves to getting small or getting really big or somewhere in between uh, or phasing like so the action sequences need to be that type i think probably what i was expecting was that this would be the oceans 13 or the oceans 8 of the marvel cinematic universe you're coming back in you've got a criminal he's got a whole gang together hank's gonna ask him to lift something else to help the cause and save janet and the movie's going to be about the plan to get something rather than it just being a really exciting CGI fest, which is what I felt yeah, like yeah. in places. But absolutely, that San, Fran- San Francisco chase scene was fantastic. And a great choice in here as well to have our giant, giant man. Um, I think they said 85 feet tall. Was that where we got this time? So twice as big as he was in Civil War, right? Yeah, no, I think that we. this is the largest giant man. That sounds really weird to say. <laughs> but uh, this is potentially the largest of the largest giant men we have seen. Uh, he is a Goliath of giant men, if you will. <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, I don't know whether Bill Foster would be very happy with that. Though. Um, but I know Peyton Reed was quite disappointed that uh, that Civil War got to give us, give the world a giant man, and he didn't in his Ant-Man movie. So I think he wanted to do something pretty big <laughs> when he got the chance to do it. Just even that scene or that chase for the boat. Mm-hmm. This is one of the reasons I love Peyton Reed and I love Paul Rudd. 
the scene where he's calling in all of the Punfield ants that are coming in and the seagulls are just coming left and right. Yes, hilarious. It's like, like, damn it. I was just (laughs) like, that is... That is why I go see these Ant-Man films, which is I'm getting cool comic book action. I'm getting typically a really good story in some form. And then I'm just getting these humor, this just silly humor, like a giant ant playing the virtual drums or the electric drums. I'm like, this is just brilliant. Can I just quickly say I hate the ant? Oh no. I like I I like the big ants with regards to where they were kind of trying to corral and stop Bill Foster and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't as such have a problem with the big ants, but yeah, Anthony on the drums in the bath. It didn't make me laugh. I didn't really find it funny. Um it's not I don't get it. Um as such, I would say um I got it in the first one. And this to me was just trying to do something like that again, and it didn't land uh, ultimately. But that was that was just me, mm-hmm. uh, possibly uh, the only person in the world to uh, not like Anthony. I wanted the seagull to get him, <laughs> and I'll probably agree with you as well, John. I didn't find it funny, but I do like the idea that Janet needed something to replace Scott Lang while she took him took him away, and the idea of making an ant that had at least got the size of Scott Lang's legs so that. Uh, they could keep the uh, tracker in his apartment and him doing the kind of activities that Scott would do. I thought it was a very smart thing to do. Probably just not that funny, but smart, I think. Your guys, your funny bone is dead. I'm getting a bit of a reputation on the comedy uh, Marvel podcasts for absolutely hating comedy movies. I have seen comedy movies in the past that I've enjoyed. I'm just not sure Marvel does them very well. Look, and that's fine. Like, And I get what you guys mean. I just, that, that's the thing. For every joke in this film that you didn't get and you didn't like, there is another that you will. I think that may be true of Deadpool 1 and 2. I don't think it's true of this film. But we'll get to our proper thoughts on the final film as we get to the end of it. But definitely, point three, the San Francisco chase scene is the most exciting point of the movie. And it goes on a really long time. They really do a good job of this chase. It didn't feel too long or anything like that. It just felt like they really were building up to this moment and kept it on screen the right amount of time for me. I really thought it was fun. Um, can we get on to point four, which is a different kind of ending for Marvel? Uh, one of the points of criticism we talked about, I think probably about movie 14, probably, because they have corrected this a number of times uh, in previous movies, is that these movies have a central idea, which is fight at the start, hero loses, they come back at the end, the world's going to end, and there's a big explosive battle at the end of the movie. Um, but this feels like the most different kind of ending that we've had in any of the Marvel films so far. Because, well, the villain does kind of win. She wants to be cured. And she gets yeah. cured at the end by the hero being brought back from the quantum realm. I thought it was a lovely ending and made and made it much more family-friendly in a way than the other movies have been. It just feels like the right choice for this movie to not have people punching each other all the way to the ending credits. And I think that's because of the end credit scene. I agree with you. This is a different ending. These films have always been slightly different. Oh, yeah. Which is fine, and I enjoy that. And I think they're not afraid now as you... Up to, yeah, 14, whatever. They were probably still trying to find their feet. Now they're they're okay with... 
hey, look, we have a Thor Ragnarok. Let's do it that way. Now, let's do an Ant-Man this way. We do not need to go by the numbers type of films. Mm -hmm. And I think that will continue to grow as potentially we get a Fantastic Four. As we get all these different different shows and Mm -hmm. different films. And I think they're going to be okay with taking more risks. I don't think that's the right word, but it probably is when you're talking million dollar. Yeah, from a marketing perspective, from a production expense, I, th- I think so. I think it's incremental risk, and I think they've they've done that, uh, and it's been managed quite well. And I, I mean, Kevin Feige recently said, you know, he does want to say, for example, bring in horror to to an extent into the Marvel movie mm-hmm. uh, universe. I have a great idea as to how he can do that. However, nonetheless, I do think that, um, you know, it, it, it's just testing that. And I think even doing the espionage thriller in Winter Soldier and, and Civil War, that, that thing with Hydra and S.H.I.E.L.D., um, I think that was a little bit of a test because, yeah, absolutely, Derek loves that. Mm-hmm. It's really popular in the comics, but whether a, a bigger audience that doesn't necessarily... Uh, a more general audience who who's not a fanboy does that connect with them and it did in a really good way so they then take a little bit more of a risk they take a a really downsized um kind of i don't mean that in a bad way but approach with the first ant-man film mm-hmm. and it works people go and see it and it's 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 really liked yeah and I don't even know whether risk is the right word, as you say, Chris. It doesn't feel like it's a risk. It shouldn't be. They're 20 movies into their franchise. This is the point where we're at, like, Quantum of Solace for James Bond, where they threw out all of the rules that you had to have to make a giant James Bond movie. Your main character doesn't have to be black-haired. Um, he doesn't have to sleep with every woman he meets. All of that stuff that had made up the previous 19 movies, they threw them all out by the time they got there and just wrote good films starring a character called James Bond, you know? Um it feels like Marvel is just doing that, where they're going, we're 20 movies into this thing. At this point, if we're not writing good films that people are going to go and see and enjoy, well, this whole thing is going to fall apart. We can't just have what's expected of us anymore, which is great. For me, this worked so well for Ant-Man and the Wasp to have that moment where our possible sort of villain gets cured of the problem that was caused by Hank um, to have Janet Van Dyne brought back and, and saved by her family and, and they have that family unit moment, it does feel like the right choice for this movie, definitely. Yeah, and it is that different kind of ending in that I was there going, oh my goodness, Ghost is going to phase her arm through Janet Van Dyne and kill her. You know, right. yeah. I, I had this tropey notion that, yeah. you know, Hope was going to have just met her mother for the first time since she was a kid. You know, they've hugged it out. There's a whole future ahead of them, um, although we do know differently, of course. And the ghost had kind of gone off the picture, and I was just expecting to see this hand, you know, almost like a, a chest burster from Alien come through <laughs> through Janet's chest, mm-hmm. and uh, she was going to have the energy you know she's going to kind of get sucked dry like a like a raisin or something and that's because we're really really dark people i know yeah <laughs> i was actually expecting janet and ghost to be sucked back into the quantum realm mm. that was the ending i was expecting i we had kind of guessed that 
Scott had to be in the quantum realm or in some form of safety during the ending of Infinity War. The the, the snapping, if you will. Nice. But I knew that's where we had to end it up. Okay. Right? But not the way that they did. I thought what we were going to end up is Ghost following them into the quantum realm. We were. I thought we were going to get Hank and Janice and Hope in the ship, all of them going in to the quantum realm at that point. Mm-hmm. Like, so they come out, oh no, I'm just going to suck you back in or something happens and like a hand comes from nowhere and grabs the two of them. As okay. She heals. I don't know. I was not expecting the end there. Mm-hmm. And what we see now is Ghost is essentially going to be potentially a Venom-like character going forward where in that she's going to be a lethal protector she potentially can be a good person. Like, they can do her as an anti-hero now. I wouldn't even say anti-hero. She absolutely is a good person and always has been. She was just trying to save herself. And we do have that moment where she effectively is saying, well, there's nothing else for me to fight for here. So the challenge is kind of over. But we hear in that post credit scene that she is working with them and they are going to get energy from the quantum realm. I wonder if that's to power these abilities that her suit gives her. So will she still be able to phase when we see her in possibly Ant-Man 3, if there is one? Um, will we see her back there working with the team uh, now with the powers? So it'd be interesting to see. And sorry, by anti-hero, I'm, I just mean a killer. She is a trained assassin. And a majority of she, she is she she shield trained her for black ops. Yeah, mm-hmm. she is absolutely. Um, so she is a killer, and she she says that she used her powers for that. So when I say anti-hero, I mean that. Typically, our shield heroes or our heroes in Marvel do not kill. Typically, mm-hmm. like like they they are not out slaughter thousands. I think you misunderstood my look there. Sorry for the fellow defenders who aren't uh, able to watch it. You misunderstood my look. The reason I made that look actually was just because there are no character deaths in this film, which is probably the first movie that we've seen from the Marvel Cinematic Universe in about six or seven where we have zero deaths in yeah, the film. There's some flashback when Ghost says that she was trained by S.H.I.E.L.D. to mm-hmm. be a secret operative where there's a few, well, there's infrared deaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but they actually kept all the death off screen. We've seen so many characters over the years. You know, you kind of expect going into the movie, who's going to die this time? Is Hank Pym, is this going to be his last movie? You know, as you said, is Michelle Pfeiffer's Janet Van Dyne, is she going to appear and then die at the end of the film? You know, um, we all have that expectation, but it's interesting that no major characters die in this yeah. film and hardly any minor characters as well. All of the uh, people in that San Francisco chase scene, they all survive. They're all knocked off the bike and fall over, that kind of stuff. But nobody dies in those scenes. And also, just quickly to Chris's point, Captain America, well, bearded Cap America or bearded Steve Rogers, he kills a lot of those four-legged creatures attacking Wakanda in Infinity War. Mm. And the Black Order get um, pretty much taken out from... Uh, other members or previous members of the Avengers. Mm-hmm. So heroes do kill. Um, it's just that they're the right type of kills. Yes. Okay, I'll agree with you. They kill the right people. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get on to our final point. Point number five. Because you kind of have to, really, when you're talking about an Ant-Man movie, to not include Lewis and his best moment in the film. Um, a slight repeat of his best moment from uh, Ant-Man 1, the truth serum moment, where we have uh, Lewis being questioned by Sonny, given truth serum, and continuing 
the wonderful tradition of putting his voice into every member of cast that's available to uh, to be recorded, uh, doing lip sync to Lewis's voice. I think this was even better than the first uh, the first movie. I love that we have the major characters. We have all of them, uh, Scott and and uh, Janet are both included here, where they're talking with the voice of Lewis as he completely misunderstands what the question is. He's asked, where is Scott Lang? And takes that to mean, because it's his best friend, he takes that to mean, where is Scott Lang emotionally after the events of Civil War? <laughs> and we get everything filled in between those two movies. We hear that they did have a relationship between the two of them. They were together for a while. And because of this trip that Scott takes to support Captain America, they've broken up now. And that is that their relationship is now on the rocks. And Lewis is very worried about Scott because he's becoming a very lonely person. It was beautiful. It really was. Mm-hmm. So many people petitioned to have Lewis do a lead up from the Iron Man to Infinity War mm-hmm. kind of style. This style, but kind of that type of recap. Yeah. I had a fear that they were going to overuse that style yeah. for this recap style. Yeah. No, they did it perfectly they went on just enough. They gave it a couple of gaps in between where mm-hmm. they, they, they have the other ex-con team um, kind of get a couple of their jokes in. Yeah. No, I really, really enjoyed this. I think Lewis is given enough screen time for this type of joke. Mm-hmm. Another probably 60 seconds, 90 seconds, and you kind of the joke would have started to feel quite old. Yeah, I think the choice to do it once in this film rather than twice like they did in Ant-Man was absolutely the right choice. Definitely. It does weirdly feel like Lewis's superpower now, that he can tell a story using other people's bodies. Uh, It kind of feels like that's what Lewis has. He has this special power where he's able to project his voice into any voice in the world, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I I loved the the truth serum uh, and him just misinterpreting it. I loved his his um, recap. I loved everything about it. And I I think you're right, Chris. You know, the, the... did it enough times. They did it the once. They didn't overuse it, you know, because it was something we all loved from the first movie. It was great to have it back again. Um, it is one of those things where you just hope they don't overuse it yeah. where it becomes meaningless because it was such good fun. Yeah. And I do wonder, yeah, that the, since this is the 10th anniversary of Marvel Studios, will we get a recap of the first 10 years of Marvel, Marvel That'd be cool. Universe? It would be really cool, but the only worry is the only way to do it right would be to have all of the main cast members voiced by Lewis telling the story of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I don't know how you'd get them all together to do that unless they've done it on the set of uh, of Avengers Infinity War. <laughs> so perhaps. You never know. I think they they actually were holding it off for this gap. Mm-hmm, maybe. I think that's kind of... They would have had everyone on set for the first uh, film. Well, okay, they recorded these back to back, but you understand what I mean. Yeah. And they're like, hey, we need to recap everyone on what happened in the last film. Let's do it this way because this is our first two parter. Yeah. Yeah. We've got what? Eight to 12 weeks between Captain Marvel and um, Avengers Infinity War Part 2, whatever they end up calling it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the perfect time to release it. I think it's actually even eight weeks. I think it's actually, it's just about eight weeks, maybe just less. I think so. I think it's similar to the gap between Black Panther and, and Infinity War, maybe a little bit less, but yeah. Uh, yeah, because I think Captain Marvel's February and this is May. Mm. Um, so anyway, I think that's what they'll do. With. I think they, they probably recorded it. Now they're just making some nice edits and this is kind of a great recap. That being said, 
this joke was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The way they pulled it off, as you said, it's his superpower. They did it great. They brought in Baba Yaga, which is really, really funny. Like, and I know the only reason I know who Baba Yaga is from Tomb Raider game about like a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, We're Baba exactly Yaga. the same, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, the the myth is a Russian myth, uh, the myth of Baba Yaga, and quite interestingly, David Dasmalkin, who uh, who plays the character Curse, is supposed to be the Russian here. So I love that he does that connection uh, in his head when he sees ghosts or hears about ghosts that it could possibly be this myth from his childhood, uh, following him to from Russia. Uh, a really funny moment from from uh, Dasmalkin here. So. Yeah, I love that kind of interlude where we have Kurt talk about Baba Yaga, uh, interrupting Louis as he's doing his, his recap rap. Really good. Great little moment here with the truth serum. Even with the guy who has developed the serum is like, no, it's not a truth serum. And then by the end of the movie, it's like, I think it's a truth serum because of it giving it to Sonny as well. So that he effectively gets arrested. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, that worked really well, I have yeah. to say, the, the capture of Sonny and his, and his three guys, because I'd kind of forgotten about the truth serum element of Lewis's story earlier on in the movie. And when Sonny suddenly starts to tell them, well, I'm a guy that does this and I do that and I robbed this and I stole that and I, I wanted to get Hank Pym's materials and he starts reeling all this stuff off. I was kind of going, why is he doing that again? And then it's only when one of the other guys say, and we also kill people. I went, oh, truth serum, of course. <laughs> but it's not truth serum. Well, the guys seem to think it is. I love that. I love that this is also the XCOM team contributing to the finale of the movie. They're contributing to the to the uh, to the closing and the capture of the villains. So quite cool. Yes, but I think this is what they had to do. The XCOM team are not powered. They could not be involved in the actual storyline in this one. Mm. They could be involved in the heist because they're thieves and things like that. This is a super powered now kind of story where you have a super villain with ghost. And you, so they couldn't have subbed in a lot of these points mm-hmm. uh, or parts. So I think this is nice. They gave, gave them their own storyline with the sunny part and yes. the chasing the guys down at the end. Yeah. I also have to say what a great choice to have the ex-cons actually becoming proper businessmen in this movie. You know, a really nice choice to have a bit of growth this time because what we saw in Ant-Man it seemed very much that they were the ones that were trying to pull Scott back into being a bad guy, trying to pull him back into uh, to doing a heist and trying to pull him back into that criminal underworld. This time, what we find, and I think this is something that comes from the comic books. They set up this company run by Scott and by Lewis that says, we were criminals, so we can now protect your company. We're the best people that know how, how this stuff works. So um, I think that's a really good choice to have all of these guys working together and kind of overthrowing the idea that we saw in the first movie that you can't get a job once you've been a criminal. A nice choice. Yeah, and you're 100% right that this is a kind of a comic book side mm-hmm. um, kind of plot point. Uh, one other comic book plot point I want to bring up. Cassie Lang, she in the comic books goes on to become, like her dad, a superhero. Yes. Um, and I think they're setting it up now. Oh, by the way, I love the little actress. She's kind of grown into her own and she's becomes fantastic. Every scene in this film, she's fantastic. I really enjoyed her as a little actress. I loved her in the first movie. And in this movie, there's actually a scene that made me cry that I don't think they even intended to make me cry. It's that moment when she says, uh, I wanted I wanted to be your sidekick, Dad. 
don't laugh at me. And I was going, yeah. oh my God, my, why are my tears, why are my tears coming out of my eyes at that scene? She's great. Really, really enjoyed her. But yes, that moment when she's sitting and uh, watching the, the movie, uh, what we think is a drive-in, but turns out to be everybody shrunk down watching a laptop. Uh, really nice uh, moment where yeah. they're watching them on the, uh, on the computer. But yes, she says in the background, I want to grow up to be just like you, dad. Yes. And uh, that is a reference to the comic books where Cassie Lang does become a superhero. But uh, that would have to be years and years away unless we are going to have a different actor's player in a future time-traveling Marvel movie, which is slightly rumored. Exactly. I'm like, this is cool. Mm-hmm. But even with the little actress, there's nothing to say in another eight years, ten years, if Marvel films are still going on. Ant-Man 5, maybe? <laughs> Ant-Man 5? She could become... Uh, like her comic books, she could become stature or stinger, like when she grows tall or big, depending on where they want to get, kind of what code name they want to give her. She's a fantastic little actress. She has mm-hmm. amazing scenes. Yeah. And I'd love to see her go on to become a superhero. I hate to break your heart, Chris, but uh, I, I, I did allude to it there earlier on. I have a feeling that if we do get it, this was just a setup and possibly we'll be getting it quite soon in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it may not be the same actress playing the character. But I do uh, kind of dislike the fact that we are we live in a world where it's in all in all possibility we will never see the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe before we die. So we'll never see how it all wraps up and closes out because <laughs> these movies are going to go on way past our time. Oh, big time! Um, but I, I I agree. I think um, I think she has a really good chemistry mm-hmm. with, with uh, Paul Rudd here, yeah. and the two of them work really well together. I love the fact that she's trying to foil Jimmy Woo uh, when he's coming to make a visit to see that uh, Scott Lang is actually there playing the drums. Mm-hmm. So yeah, really uh, good character, definitely. And that opening sequence with Scott under house arrest. That is the best playground I've ever seen on screen for a kid and their father. That Those moments where they're pretending like the two of them have ad powers. Very cool. Very, very nice moments. Uh, yeah, she's wonderful in here. Um, guys, we've done our top five points. But I think we have to have an extra point, really, for the post-credit scenes, because it really did feel like that. This is a self-contained movie, one of the first, really, that we've seen that didn't really depend on uh, having seen any of the other films. Uh, you could have seen Ant-Man, maybe needed to see Civil War a little bit, but they give you enough of a recap for this movie uh, to be a complete standalone. So when we get to our post-credit scenes, anybody think we weren't going to see the impact of the snapping happening on Scott Lang and the rest of the team? 100%. We knew it was coming, and I... Exact same way I thought it was. Uh huh. Yeah, but an interesting one. We see Scott going into the quantum realm. We see Janet, Hope, and uh, Hank in control of the team. They talk about the fact that um, that Ghost is now also on the team, and they're working with her. They're going to go and get some quantum energy to to bring it back to them. I think this happens a couple of weeks after the end of the movie because obviously Janet and Hank have gone to that beach to set up their brand new house, which doesn't seem to have any plumbing or electricity going into it. But anyway, that's a, <laughs> that is just a bit of an aside. Um, so we think this is a couple of weeks. They've had a bit of time to spend some time together and then get the team back together to go into the quantum realm and, and retrieve that quantum energy. So the timeline I think here is the actual film takes place about a month, month and a half maybe two max mm-hmm. before uh, Avengers Infinity War because there's nothing in the news or anything like that, that that would allude to an actual timeline. But we can assume, let's say, three months before. What makes me think it could be actually less is that uh, Ghost says she's going to need another hit of the energy. 
Mm-hmm. It's not a hundred percent. I think we're like we're talking within about a month between the events of the film and the snapping. Yes, I really think yeah. that it's that short, potentially even shorter. But we don't know the decay of that quantum energy, like it's half life. So yeah, hundred percent. That's the that's the bit we just don't know, um, and that's what it will always come down to. I don't think we'll ever get a proper timeline unless Marvel decides to put out a timeline styled kind of book or a youtube video or something like that but what did you guys think about the ending yeah i i loved um this middle post credit scene uh where effectively the happy family reunion turns to dust and you get scott lang trapped then in the quantum dimension uh here uh, I, th- I, th- I just thought it was really hard hitting it immediately took me back to the end of infinity war mm-hmm. where all these people are turning to dust and you're just there going oh my goodness um and, and certainly you know it's not it's all three of them uh are, are gone so yeah i thought that i thought that was really cool those nice little uh tie to infinity war so it was really good and this is the one that gives you your clues that you were looking for for Infinity War. We do hear Janet give some reference to Scott when she's talking to him about going into the quantum realm. She mentions uh, the fact that we have the tardigrades in there. Will they play a part in in the future? Will he come out riding a giant tardigrade from uh, the quantum realm? Or is it possibly the much more overt reference where she says time works really differently in there, Scott? So. How long is he going to be in the quantum realm and how much impact is that going to have on the future of the Avengers? Will he be in there for years? Will he be in there for days? As you mentioned, Chris, is this talking about maybe Captain Marvel has been in there for 20 years and it seemed like 40 years, something like that? You know, do we have some kind of reference in there? Is this the clue? Because as you say, the the actual film itself, the main body of the film has no real connection to what's going on in Avengers. This is the one, this is the scene. And once again, I'll give them the same compliment I gave them for Infinity War. You know, when you've been criticized for 19 movies by to not have a movie led by a female, and then you do The Wasp and Ant-Man like this one was, where you have it finally a character being brought to the forefront as a leading lady, and then you kill her off in the closing credits? Well, well done, Marvel. You really are trolling your fans. They did the same thing with Black Panther. The movie had just been out a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and then they killed them off in the next movie, you know? And they're really good at doing this. They like, they like having a good, uh, bit of a gag, I suppose, at their fans. We know these characters are coming back, but it doesn't hurt any less really when they die. <laughs> I, I do think Wasp will have a proper role now in Infinity War. If she comes back, Chris. If she comes back. That's true. <laughs> Can you imagine if it gets to the end of Infinity War and none of these characters have come back? They all just arrive back at the end of the movie. So none of them get to appear in Infinity War at all. It's just the six or seven people that were left well, uh, plus Scott Lang. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great way for Marvel to reshuffle the decks as to their upcoming movies. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they may have come back, but that we don't need to see them again. Yeah, yeah. And it is really interesting that Ant-Man stays alive, obviously, at the end of this movie, because mostly the people that are alive at the end of Infinity War are the original Avengers, are the people that made up the original Avengers team. Ant-Man was one of that original team. So was Wasp. Uh, So the choice of losing Wasp and keeping Ant-Man and having the original Avengers together with Rocket and Okoye, uh, I think they're the only other two people that we know for definite are alive at the end of Infinity War. Yeah, and War Machine is there as well. That's right. That's right. There is a War Machine as well. Yeah. So, gentlemen, as a slight aside... 
We have seen now the 60s, 70s version of Janet Van Dyne and Hank Pym. Mm-hmm. Would you like to see uh, a 60s, 70s style spy film? Like, think the think the Men from Uncle. Um, that style where it's a de-aged, the two characters de-age for the whole film. Mm-hmm. I'd absolutely love to see that, but I don't know whether they'll ever do that. The technology is quite is quite significantly better, I think, here than we've seen in the past. They de-age quite a lot of characters in the Marvel Universe now. We've had yeah. everybody from Robert Downey Jr. to uh, Michael Douglas in the first Ant-Man. Um, you know, we had an aged-up Kelly Atwell in that movie as well. We've had Kurt Russell's fantastic de-aging in, uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm just wondering, there is going to come a point. Somebody's going to do it. They're going to take a dead actor and de-age them to what they were like in their prime and make an entire movie out of them. But I'm just not too sure whether actors are willing to do that uh, at this stage. I don't well, know. their parent studio has already done that with regards to Rogue One, with Grand Moff Tarkin. Mm-hmm, that's um, true. So it's a possibility. But to your point, Chris, absolutely would love to see a 60s one because I, I I think you could have that. And I think with S.H.I.E.L.D., with Nick Fury's uh, espionage and, and spy stories there, you link them in with that in absolutely. some way. It would be absolutely awesome. Mm-hmm. And dare I say it, I would even like to see a period piece Marvel story and film in terms of 1602. I think, why oh, not? That'd be amazing. Well, that would yeah. be amazing. It I would. think I think we'd have to get somebody fun. off the "it's all connected" train before oh. we do that. But that would be great. I'd yeah, exactly. Love it, of course, absolutely love it. And um, let's just quickly talk about the final post credit scene because there's not a huge amount to talk about here. It's just the ant who's been trained to take Scott Lang's place is continuing on with his job of taking Scott Lang's place by playing the drums in his house. But there is one little touch that I loved in here. It does feel like the entire universe has gone to hell. What we see as the camera pans into Scott Lang's house, the door is open, the TV is on, but it's on a news channel that's off air. So the snapping has definitely happened and we see kind of the aftermath. A nice touch because... It's a reference to the movie Them that they, that Cassie and Scott and Hope were watching on the laptop. It is the ants have now taken over the world because so many humans are gone. I think it's just a nice little touch. They haven't taken over the world. It's just Scott's apartment, but I just liked it. It feels like something from a horror movie from the, from the forties and fifties. Exactly. I, I, I picked up on that. I would have preferred something more significant. I, I it's know. a comedy movie. You had a significant one already. <laughs> I know. I kind of agree with you, Chris, here. Um, yeah, it was a bit of the shawarma moment for uh, Ant-Man for me, uh-huh. uh, seeing the ant again on the drums. So, yeah, but I, I did like the reference to the, the idea that, yes, the ants have taken over the world. They yeah. are... As Kent Brockman says, you know, they are our new overlords. So uh, I, I did like that reference. Um, yeah. I, I just, I think they could have done some form of Captain Marvel kind of 30 second teaser. <laughs> no, no. I think, I think the idea of ending Ant-Man, a fabulous, fun family film, not an exact review, but I liked it. I have all Fs in there. Um, <laughs> the idea of ending that with just having the dusting of three of your major characters, 
you kind of need a little funny moment to close it out. They, they've done this very regularly on Marvel where they have two post-credit scenes. One a funny one, throwaway gag that's kind of part of the movie, and another one a teaser for the future. I think this one's quite well managed personally, but that's just personal choice. But was it fun? Because it basically said that Scott Lang's extended family, his daughter, his mm-hmm. ex-wife, and then obviously the stepdad uh, are also wiped out here. Not necessarily. That's a different house. But that's how I was taking it. <laughs> the whole world is wiped out. Anyway, that's enough of the post-credit discussions scenes. Uh, a couple of Easter eggs, probably, for this movie. Not as many as I was expecting um, in this movie. Uh, we do have our Stanley cameo in here, as his car is uh, shrank and disappeared uh, during that, that uh, San Francisco chase scene. And we have a very funny quip from Stanley where he's saying, the 60s were great, but I'm paying for it now. <laughs> nice, yeah. nice, it, Stanley. It was nice to see Stanley in person mm-hmm. in having the cameo. Uh, obviously, the reason why I'm saying that is because with the Marvel Netflix, you know, we're just off Luke Cage Season 2, where the cameos are printed form primarily. Mm-hmm. We You don't get real-life Stanley. So it was nice to have him uh, there in person, Giving the cameo. Yeah, same in Cloak and Dagger as well. Wasn't it in episode ten of Cloak and Dagger? They have uh, they have the posters on the wall of Stanley as well. So uh, that is his TV cameos. But really good to see him in there. He is no longer doing con appearances anymore. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's officially said that he he is stepping away from con appearances. So I think we'll only get a couple more. That's true. Yeah, he's coming away from the cons, um, but certainly. He's doing an awful lot of executive producing these days. He absolutely is. Always got a, a producer credit on loads of shows and loads of uh, loads of movies because he's such a huge creator, of course. He is 96 years old. It is great to, that we have the ability to see him in all of these movies uh, that we've seen so far. Um, it would be absolutely remiss of me just to mention that Michael Douglas starred in a TV show called The Streets of San Francisco in the 70s where he played a cop. Lots of chase scenes in that in that uh, TV show. So loved that this movie was set in San Francisco, and we get some chase scenes with uh, with all the other characters going around San Francisco, his old streets. Uh, nice touch. Yes, and our final one, which is a little bit of a crossover with the DC world, is Michael Severus, uh, who we know as Professor Pig from Gotham, is the ball-headed father of Ghost, who we see doing that failed experiment in Argentina. Uh, he's named here as uh, Elias Star, which is his alter ego of the Marvel villain Egghead. Egghead? We are really getting into some of these Z-list villains. It's like, and soon we will have Celery Man. And you're going to go, who? <laughs> Do you know how Z-list this character is? People only know of a comic book character called Egghead in the DC comics because he used to be in the Batman 60s uh, TV series, series. We had Egghead appear in there, but most people don't know there is a Marvel villain also called Egghead. Yes. A nice choice to have Michael Severus in there playing him uh, yeah. with his shaved bald head. Yeah. Uh, so just that touch, just a nice little touch for a really small cameo, 30 second or, or a minute long scene. Yes, and Chris, you do joke about Celery Man, but there is Condiment King, remember? Oh my in the God, Batman universe, in the Batman right. universe, mm-hmm. yes. We have seen him in Lego Batman 3. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was also great to see Michael Severus in the movie. As you mentioned, John, we do Gotham TV podcasts where we talk about Gotham every week. When the show is on air, it's great to see Michael Severus. And also David Osmalkin, who played uh, one of Jerome's followers in Gotham as well. Seeing two pretty high-profile fo- high Gotham characters appearing in this movie was a nice nice for us. Yeah, absolutely. Really good to, to see uh, that. And uh, certainly just because uh, Michael Severus was 
so awesome as Professor Pig. Mm-hmm. One of your favorites, isn't he? Yeah. Mm. Um, really connected in with my dark side, so to speak. And so, yes, on that note, we go to our defense. So with that, Chris, do you defend this Marvel movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp? Yes, I defend this film. I defend a lot of these films, but this one's for a slightly different reason. This is really a the first film with a female lead, mm-hmm. even in the title. I know we've had Scarlet Witch, we've had the, the Black Widow, but I, I do find um, Hope Van Dyke's character a, a bit more lead in this film. She, mm-hmm. she has a lot of the driving force behind it. She is a hell of a lot more kick-ass than Scott. Um, so I'm really glad that this film now exists. That being said, this is wouldn't even probably be in my top ten. Uh, it's a good, fun, family film. Mm-hmm. It's a good film that places some emphasis on the history that we had of Civil War, the history we've had of the first film, things like that. So it does play well into it's a set, it's a sequel. So he's using those points. I'd love to come back and rediscuss this film in two years' time, a year's time, when we've seen the outcome of Infinity War and see how Ant Man plays into it. And then kind of go, well, actually, little did we know all about this quantum realm stuff was actually the way more important than we ever knew. And this film, which had very had a lot to do with it, was actually so important. I'd love that to be true, and I think that'd be really interesting. I don't think it's going to be the case. I think it's going to be somewhere in between. So essentially, yes, I defend this film. It's a fun family romp with ants, wasp, and an ant-man. Um, I think people should see it. I think you'll enjoy it. Do you need to rush out? No. Have you probably rushed out? No. They've probably all seen it a month ago, Chris, to be honest. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Everyone's probably seen this, so they're kind of going, well, I just want to hear what you thought. Um, so, yes, I do defend, but it's not in my top ten. I will revise at the end of Infinity War 2. Derek, do you defend Ant-Man and the Wasp? I do. For families, for kids, uh, this is probably the best choice to take a kid uh, who watches Marvel movies too to see a superhero that they'll have fun watching. I said it earlier on in the podcast, though. I'm getting a really bad reputation here for hating comedies. Um, Marvel are terrible at comedies, terrible about making me laugh for an entire film. This felt like it had the opportunity of being Marvel's Deadpool for kids. You know, something that you could take your kids to and they'd laugh the whole way through and you'd laugh the whole way through. I'm shocked at how the older Paul Rudd gets, the less funny I'm finding him or the le- the more he's trying to inject drama into his roles. Because he's a funny guy. I find him really funny. But in, they just can't find that balance where they can actually make me laugh throughout the film. They give the best joke to Lewis, who's a, a minor character in the movie, but they give the best moment to him. They really could have done more in this movie. I was surprised when I came out of the film how much I forgot about it and how inconsequential it felt. I know there's a phrase that's been attached to this movie by Empire Magazine to both of the Ant-Man movies, actually, that it's a good palate cleanser for the bigger movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, Ant-Man, if you remember, came out directly after Age of Ultron, which was a huge movie, had a death scene for a major character. Ant-Man came out in the wake of that and kind of just passed away very quickly afterwards. I feel this is going to be the same. In eight months' time, when we get to the sequel to Avengers, 
all we're going to remember is maybe Captain Marvel and this. And then we're going to be struggling to remember what movie was it that came out between Infinity War 1 and 2. <laughs> That's That was my feeling. So I defend it because it's a bit of fun. A fun one definitely for the right audience, but I don't think I'm the right audience for it. John, do you defend Ant-Man and the Wasp, the 20th Marvel Cinematic Universe movie? I do defend Ant-Man and the Wasp. I give it three biting and stinging insects out of five. Um, There's much to like here for me uh, in this movie. I absolutely loved um, the quantum dimension. I really, really enjoyed uh, Janet Van Dyne. uh, And and just that that focus on the Van Dynes, really. Um, I think the issues that come for me on this movie... Um, are that I actually wanted more of them. I know in the past, you know, on Marvel Netflix, I always say how I actually quite like the fact that they are not connected in with the MCU. Um, I wish they had connected this movie in more to the MCU. Uh, because I, I, I really do think having, okay, it might not even be relevant, but this, this, this idea that, that Scott Lang is trapped now at the end of this movie in the quantum realm. And we do know that Scott Lang is in Infinity War 2. Mm-hmm. So I would have liked to have seen more of that connection other than that final scene. And primarily, given that he's trapped in the quantum realm, about how maybe that is involved with that through the storyline of the Van Dynes trying to rescue Janet, which I actually didn't mind. I loved the car chase here. I absolutely loved it. Louis' um, reprise of his interrogation rap, that was fantastic. Um, and I, I really did like Ghost. Um, I thought it was a really interesting um, antagonist here. But then I just wondered where it sat in, in these movies. And I, I think, unfortunately, Ant-Man has kind of gotten a bit of the, the bad rub with this integrated, connected mcu verse that we supposedly have where he feels less connected it does feel um i know that giant man should have been should have made his debut here or in the first ant-man not necessarily in civil war it would have been really good to explore that element um so i really like this movie there's a lot that's quite endearing uh to uh to me of this movie um but I do think it suffers, and I think there are issues around how it connects in with the wider MCU, um, because it does seem to make me feel that Ant-Man really isn't that integral to the Avengers, and yet I think he should feel that. Um, and as certainly if he may crop up to be pivotal in some way in Infinity War 2. But I do defend this movie. I think it is one that is good to sit back and relax and enjoy the action most of the humor um and michelle pfeiffer's fantastic performance <laughs> lots of great performances in this movie definitely and the point that you're making john if he does get incorporated into the avengers universe a bit better in the future if we see a big moment for him in infinity war that would make me excited to see ant-man 3 right now Maybe if I was babysitting some kids and wanted to bring them to a movie, this would be the choice for me. Uh, I think that's time to get on to our feedback. 
And our first piece of feedback comes from our Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash Defenders TV podcast. If you want to keep up to date with what we're doing and chat to us about any of the Marvel Universe, that's the place to go. Uh, the first piece of feedback comes in from Kristen Howell. She says, I loved this movie. I thought it was equal parts, great for kids and adults. I didn't realize that this is the first Marvel movie to have a woman's character in the main title. My kids thoroughly enjoyed it, enough that we saw it twice in a week. I'm really looking forward to how on earth Ant-Man gets out of his Thanos predicament. His situation seems to be the most severe of all of them, to be honest. Looking forward to hearing your coverage of the episode, as this was one of my favourites so far. I have a feeling you may not enjoy it, Derek, only because of your ranking I've seen in the past. But we'll see if I'm right. Well, Kristen, you know me well. You've been listening to the podcast for quite a long time. Uh, yes. The other guys liked it, though. Guys? Yeah, I liked it. Uh, no, I think and I think you're right. We're, we're Everyone's interesting to see how Scott gets out of this. Why can't it be May next year already? <laughs> you have to wait for good things. It's a lesson for everybody. <laughs> Patience is not one of my virtues. <laughs> Chris, do you want to take the next week's feedback? Yes. Uh, Lisa Richardson had this to say. This is the most jarring post credit scene ever for a Marvel film. And then Christian Howell said, totally agree. And Michael Booth replied, especially for someone who hadn't seen Infinity War. I saw it and was like, huh? So that must be an Infinity War thing. I really should get around to seeing that. Oh, Michael, poor yes. Michael. <laughs> you have to see yes. Infinity War. And uh, Kristen, Lisa, yeah. I like the word jarring now. That yeah. is a, it's a good one. Definitely. Jarring. It, it, it's an end, definitely. Yeah, de- definitely agree with you, Lisa. Um, you know, they had just come together as a nice, happy family after being uh, separated through Janet being in the quantum realm. And then... They are separated by the wind as they are turned to dust. And Michael, your story must be the most tragic spoiler <laughs> ever uh-huh. that I have, uh, I've heard. That's really, really sad. I will say I think it's a great choice that that scene appeared in the post credits because you Definitely. did have at least a couple of minutes of credits to get over your fun, happy family experience. <laughs> and maybe if anybody wasn't interested in seeing the spoiler, they could have left the cinema. I suppose uh, at least they had that moment. So I don't know whether it was jarring to me. I kind of knew it was coming. Um, I was kind of waiting for when's that post credit scene that ties, ties into the Infinity War. How many people are going to go? How many people are going to disappear? And it made me think of all of those people around the world who are, you know, being held by ropes by their friends or, you know, firemen who are having people hold the ladder, that kind of stuff. And then somebody suddenly disappears and they're in peril. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Think of all of those moments. And I think as well, just on the end credit scene, because again, I think the Empire podcast said, you know, let's get to everything that everyone's talking about the Ant-Man and Wasp movie, which was yeah. the end credit. And I, it, it is that point where I actually do wish that, um, Marvel would treat Ant-Man a bit more integral to the MCU and with a bit more, dare I say it, respect. I don't know uh, whether I necessarily mean that, but uh, more involved. Um, and I hope we get to see him a bit more involved in Infinity 2. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Lisa, uh, for uh, the, the feedback. Gillian uh, Moreau goes, this movie was great. I thought the humor was perfect and not overdone. Paul Rudd is a favorite of mine, and his way of delivering lines is always great. I really enjoyed Evangeline Lilly as well, and I'm hoping to see them team up some more in the future because their chemistry is great. That being said, that post-credit scene made me gasp out loud in the theater, especially because the whole family just got back together, heartbreaking. Plus, how does Ant-Man get out of there? 
Can he summon his aunt pal that hangs out and drums in his apartment? <laughs> well, Gillian, uh, on the comedy side of it, I will throw your feedback over to Derek. Um, but nonetheless, I wonder whether it is going to be a Gamora-shaped rescue for Scott Lang, or will it be um, a Doctor Strange-type rescue or more importantly or maybe more personally given the next marvel film could be captain marvel yeah so um especially because two of those characters are also in the same situation as the van dyne family <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it may be just well, that, that the van dyne's true. reappear and bring him out of the quantum realm so it will be interesting to mm -hmm. see how he he gets uh out of his predicament but it was certainly um a real heartbreaking time with uh, them turning to dust on the comedy um yeah i enjoyed most of it some of it didn't land for me but uh yeah derek over to you <laughs> the only thing i would say actually i just feel that there wasn't enough of it i don't think there were any jokes that didn't particularly land with me i just didn't feel like they were being as humorous as they could be with the situation this is a guy that chance that, ch that changes into an ant a woman that changes into a wasp and a woman that phases it in an age of being at really inappropriate times you know could have just had a bit more fun with it, that's all. Uh, I don't think I missed jokes. I think I just felt they could have done a bit more. Christine Howell's uh, comments to Julian saying, The ants were great in this movie for sure. And yes, the post credit scene was all I took away with me the first time around. Mm. And Lisa says the second post credit scene was so eerie. It was silly and very sad. I hope Avengers 4 shows us more of the post-snapture world. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see the kind of potential chaos that Thanos has created that kind of almost zombie world um you know slightly desolate slightly um empty of, of people um because yeah the ant drumming alone in the house was kind of eerie mm -hmm. with the the news on the the snow out the white out uh really interesting so yeah. um yeah it'd be interesting how they deal with that you know thanos presumably is still having a good old gin and tonic on that planet that he's at <laughs> and i still think my favorite post-credit scene so far has been the infinity war one with nick fury and maria hill reacting to the snappening uh as as it's being called by us uh because we can't say snapocalypse um but, uh, but yes i'd love to see the first 10 or 15 minutes taking place after that happened with thanos not going back to fix it beforehand uh, i'd love to see a, a post-apocalypse world where uh, we find out a lot more about what's happened to the universe uh, chris do you want to take our final piece of feedback yes michael booth said i loved ant-man and the wasp the original is top five mcu for me and this is just as good standout scene for me was paul world playing michelle pfeiffer playing Janet Van Dyne. Mm -hmm. He played it so straight, it was pure gold. Yes, Mike, we fully agreed with you on this one. Uh, it was a standout scene, and um, I'd love to see more of it. Potentially, in the sequel, we have Michelle Pfeiffer playing Paul Rudd. She's dead. Mm, yeah. But if they bring her back, then you could have her playing Paul Rudd, playing Scott Lang. That would be interesting. It's not going to happen, but that'd be a fun one to do. In number three. <laughs> I, I could certainly see Michelle Pfeiffer doing yes. that. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for all of that feedback from our Facebook group. As I said, over at facebook.com slash groups slash Defenders TV podcast. 
we'll be getting to our Iron Fist discussions again as Iron Fist will be coming out on Netflix on the 7th of September, under a month away to that. So if you want to send in any of your feedback for that show as you're watching it, you can email us at feedback at defenderstvpodcast.com. Um, we'll be really looking forward to, t- to talking about that one. Yep. Cannot wait to see Iron Fist Season 2. Very excited for this. Uh, one of my favorite uh, Marvel characters. So September the 7th cannot come soon enough. Yes, also because Spider-Man, the PS4 exclusive game, is coming out the same day. So this Defenders TV podcast host will be very tired because he will be podcasting and playing games exclusively for 24 to 48 hours without (laughs) taking a break. Um, So let's see how this works. Yes, and of course, in the interim, we will be beginning our comic coverage on Defenders TV podcast So we will be starting with Strange Tales on Defenders TV podcast uh, in August uh, between now and Iron Fist, where we'll be looking at Doctor Strange's follow-up to Damnation uh, with the Mark Wade run, where Doctor Strange goes boldly where no man has gone before. To Star Trek? That's very true. To space. Uh Strange in space, yes. Going to be uh, really intrigued to talk about that one. I'm not the hugest Doctor Strange fan in the world, but I'm really, really loving everything since the Doctor Strange movie has come out. So the more I've read, the more I love. Uh, Strange Tales will also feature other appearances by Defenders comic books, by Spider-Man, by my favorite Nick Fury, because, uh, well, he was the other character in Strange Tales comics back in the 60s. So uh, we'll have loads of comic coverage in between all of our other episodes about the shows. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, fellow Defenders, once again. Hope you've been enjoying this. Again, if you're listening to Marvel movies on Defenders TV podcast, come on over to our normal podcast on DefendersTVPodcast.com. Yes, thank you so much, fellow Defenders. It is always a pleasure to share our thoughts and reviews on this review. I can't wait to be back for Iron Fist Season 2 on September 7th, so we will see you then bright and early on the Friday morning. But until then, stay cool with one another. (laughs) Yes, absolutely, fellow Defenders. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure. Well, hopefully Thanos' snapping will not affect all of our podcast hosts and we all disappear into the ether. Wait, hold on. Can it, can it affect me? Because I really have a lot of Spider-Man PS4 to be playing that day. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Talk to you again soon. Bye. 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 I had kind of guessed that Ant-Man had to be in the quantum realm during the Snapopolis. Wow, I didn't say that right. <laughs> the what? <laughs> there are about 6,000 other ways to say that, and uh, that was definitely the worst. Snapopolis? <laughs> no. Apocalypse? Snapocalypse. Snapocalypse. I, we had kind of guessed that Scott had to be in the quantum realm or in some form of safety during the snapopolis i can't say it during the ending of infinity war the the, the snapping if you will nice uh